So about 11 months ago, I had the privilege of uh, stepping into your life. Boy, you guys had to give like introduction before about being the last Sunday here, and I wasn't ready for that. Is this really my last Sunday here? So, so I was sitting there tearing up there, and I know you've never seen me tear up in my 11 months here. Um, can, can we make sure the lights are up out here, though, a little bit more? There we go. There's everybody I know. All right. Um, and uh, so I got to step into a, a transition time. And, and I, I joked a few weeks ago when we were doing a sermon about um, what was the Last Supper, but it happened like the week after we celebrated communion here on a Sunday. And I said, if I were a logistical genius, it would have fallen on that time when I planned out the sermons. I must be a logistical genius because this is my last Sunday here and we're completing the book of Mark. So, so who's been here since the beginning of it? Woohoo, look at that. So I'm just going around the room, and one of you will start, and then we'll just add to the story. All right? And then I'll conclude it. Okay, so in the beginning, oh, no. Um, so it's been an incredible journey. And I, I picked this series and entitled it Great Beginnings because I think that's, that's what life in Christ is about. And throughout the book of Mark, the way he wrote it is always about fresh starts. Always about uh, giving his disciples an, an opportunity again to, to, to get it right. Because they, they, uh, the way Mark does the 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 way he talks about the disciples, they're always falling a little bit short, right? They, they, he emphasizes the failure of the disciples. It's an interesting, an interesting perspective that Mark brings it. And, and we think that he brings that perspective because, as I said at the very beginning of the series, Mark most likely got his information from Peter. Peter was a mentor. And, and who was the most likely to fail through that process? It was Peter. And, and so when he relates the story to Mark, Mark captures all that. Because who else would tell the story that was the beginning of a religious movement and paint themselves in such a horrible light. That's one of the reasons I think scripture is true because the people who were around at the beginning of it didn't put themselves on a pedestal. They, they always elevated who Jesus was, not who they were. So two weeks ago uh, when we had our last sermon in the book of Mark, we, we ended at the cross. We ended when Jesus died. And there was this amazing statement made by the centurion. And I said that was really a pivotal moment. That was the conclusion moment, really, for Mark's gospel. Because the gospel of Mark started out with the beginning of the gospel, beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And the first person in the book of Mark to absolutely wholeheartedly grasp onto the idea that Jesus is the Son of God was the centurion, who had been part of a really a mob of soldiers who had, who had beaten Jesus. This is this what they did for a living. They crucified people. They tortured people. They, they put them up on a cross. This could happen to you. We are in charge, not you. And this man who would have raised himself up through this process by being the biggest thug, says, as Jesus had died, he saw how he died. And then he said, surely, learn from that that Jesus' identity, who Jesus is in all of his fullness, is absolutely connected to his death. You can't separate those. This man didn't say, Jesus is the Son of God because he saw him rise again. He said, he's the Son of God because of the way he died. It was this amazing moment in time conclude the, the rest of chapter 15. So this is after that statement by the centurion. And go through the, then through the end of, of chapter 16. And, and a little disclaimer here. At the end of chapter 16, most of our Bibles go through verse 8 of chapter 16. And then there's probably a little disclaimer in your Bible that says uh, the following verses, which would be verses 9 through 20, uh, do not appear in the earliest and best manuscripts. 
And, and so most scholars believe that sometimes, like if you have a King James Bible, it'll go all the way to verse 20. That verses 9 through 20 really don't belong there. They were, they were added later for some reason. And we know they were added later because of the type of language used, some of the reference points, some of the, the grammar used was not used in the Greek language when Mark wrote, but it was, it was years later, maybe 100 years or so later. So most scholars don't think those verses belong there and that the, the book of Mark ends at verse 8. So that, that's where we're going to end. And we're going to wrestle through some of that as we go. So let me read for you, starting in verse 40 of chapter 15, and then we'll go through chapter 16. It says, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached... Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I think you see why a lot of people later wanted to add some stuff to Mark's finish. Because that doesn't seem like a very satisfying ending. This is the most amazing moment. And what's interesting is Mark has covered all this time of the life and ministry of Jesus. And then almost half of the book was about his march to the cross and and several chapters and many, many verses about his death and his trial and his crucifixion. And now we have eight little short verses about the resurrection. And it ends by saying, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End of the story. That's not very satisfying. And we look at the other gospel accounts, and they add a lot more material. They have stories of of Jesus appearing to his disciples. They have the stories of the women going immediately and telling Peter and the disciples, and and then they came and they went in the tomb, and that doesn't happen here. We have this really difficult, unsatisfying ending. They were bewildered. They were alarmed. They were afraid. And they went out and they didn't say anything to anyone. And that's how Mark chose to. And the debate has raged over over the years of of biblical scholars of of saying, well, why does it end there? And is that really the ending? And, And a lot of people think, well, there's no way that's the ending. 
Right? He had to have written something else that just got lost in time. Maybe it was some kind of manuscript, and over time and use it kind of got torn away, but just at the end of that exact same thought. I mean, he was living in a very challenging time. This was during the persecution time of Nero in Rome, when we said that's really who Mark's audience was, Christians in Rome in the 60s, undergoing deep persecution, and maybe he was under that too. And some people think, well, maybe he was martyred during that time and never finished it, or he got busy doing something else. No, no, I don't. He's asking us, he's asking his audience to step into a story. And if we really think about how, how the book of Mark has played out and how he has expressed who Jesus is, this idea of being afraid has played out a lot. Very earlier in our study, we had, uh, let's say, the story of... Um, when Jesus was on the... His disciples were in the boat and he came walking out on the water. Right, and then he, 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 he wanted to greet him. He wanted to show him something about who he was. Remember this phrasing of he was about to pass them by was this Old Testament image of he was going to reveal to them he's God. But they were afraid. Right? We've seen throughout the book that, that fear is the, the opposite of faith. And so he says, don't be afraid. Are you still so afraid? Do you have no faith? That was a, a phrase he made to them. Or we have the story of the, the woman right, who, who had a, a blood disease for like 12 years. And when he was walking to the marketplace, she, she thought that was his la- her, her last hope. So she reached out and touched his clothes, right? And just hoping that would take care of her. And, and he felt power go out of him. And, and she was better. But what did he do? He, he turned around and noticed her. Who touched me? And she's cowering in the corner. And it said, why? Because she was afraid. Or we had the story when Jesus cast out the thousands of demons from that man, the garrison man. Right? Thousands and thousands. This man had tormented a village, tormented this village. He was, he was an outcast. He, he was filled with evil, but when the townspeople came and saw what had happened to him, and they said he was sitting there fully dressed and in his right mind, they were afraid. Fear played out. When the, some of the disciples were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they saw Jesus, he gave them a glimpse into who he really is in all of eternity. They saw this glimpse, but they didn't know what to say. Why? Because they were afraid. And when he was kind of on this steady march to Jerusalem and told them what was going to happen, it says many of those who were following him were were afraid. They really never seen anything like this. And so this idea of fear has played out throughout the book of Mark. Fear and failure has played out over and over and over again. And so for Mark to end it this way really isn't that unusual. They were afraid. They had experienced something that they did not expect. And so you put themselves in in, in yourself in their shoes. And it says these same women at the end of the last uh, uh, chapter, and we just read it, right, about some of the women who followed him were at a distance and saw. This is the first time we've really seen in the book of Mark that there was this other group of people that followed him. We had the close 12 disciples. We had other people just talk about people who followed and wanted to learn from him. But here we have people named. This group of women who they said they were followers or they learned from him. They had been there. and we, we know from other stories they, su- they supported his ministry. They were deeply engaged one-on-one with Jesus. They learned from him. They sat with him. They were followers of his and his close disciples were nowhere to be found here. The last time we saw them, they had fled the scene. Last time we saw Peter, he, he was weeping because he had betrayed Jesus. You get at the cross, we have these three women and, and others who had followed him, and they, they watched. 
And then we have the story of this man, Joseph of, of Arimathea, who was a, such a prominent member of the council. And what do we know about the council? Just a, a couple of weeks ago, looking at the trial of Jesus, this mock trial before the Sanhedrin, before the religious leaders, right? They were the ones who wanted Jesus done away with. But, but one of those people, one of that council, the book of Luke tells us that this man, Joseph, did not... He didn't consent to what was going on. He didn't like the decision that he made. Here Mark just says he was somebody who was looking for the kingdom. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So put yourself in his shoes. He's part of this group. Basically this whole group had planned that Jesus be crucified. Yet I'm now going to go to Pilate and ask for the body. And that wasn't unheard of, but it wasn't common for a non-family member to ask. Again, that the Roman government approach to crucifixion was to basically make a big statement to the world, don't mess with us or this happens to you. body of somebody who basically was tried for sedition and treason, I want that body. He was risking a lot to ask for that. But he was asking for it because Jewish custom, Jewish law says that, that a body should be buried before the Sabbath starts. And Sabbath is starting in a few hours. And so Pilate gave him the body, centurion, that the body was really dead, and gave it to him and said, Joseph went and placed it in a tomb, wrapped it in cloth. And said, these women saw what happened. They saw where the body was laid. And, and so as soon as they could, as soon as Sabbath was over, which would have been sundown on Saturday, they, they went and bought spices and, and the oil so they could anoint the body and, and wrap the body and do what you're supposed to. And, and they're on the way, first thing in the morning, go take care of what they did. They're going to care for the body of the man they had followed. And what's their conversation about? It's all of a sudden, how are we going to move that stone? And Mark says, in particular, it's a large stone. And so the entrance to the tomb, like a cave, has a stone rolled in front of it. And the stones were made to be moved. There was a little rock track, most likely, and it would roll downhill to cover it. It had to be able to open it because it's a family tomb. And the way the process took place was they were buried. Uh, there were spices and perfumes in there. Why? Because that's to make the smell not as bad. And then once the, the body had completely decomposed and it was just bones, and they would rebury it, just, just the bones and ossuary, right? And so the stone had to be moved, but rolling it back up the hill a little ways is harder. And so that's their concern. Who, who's going to move the stone? And it says when they got there, the stone had already been moved. And when they looked inside, there was a, a man dressed in white, a young man. And, and we understand the language used there in the, the other uh, Gospels. This, this is an angel, a messenger. He says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Well, he, he's risen. He, he's not here. Go see where they laid him. Well, these women had seen where the tomb was. They, they knew what they were going to find. But, he, but he's not here. So go and, and tell his disciples and Peter that he has gone ahead of them into Galilee, just like he said he would. So, so this amazing story taking place, and, and you would be startled too. You're, you're going in this place of mourning. You're, you're doing the thing that you have to do. This is the man we, we followed. We believed him, and we're going to take care of his, his bloody and battered and beaten body the way we have to, and we're going to clean it, and we're going to anoint it, and we're going to wrap it back up, and then we're going to leave. But instead, this, this, this guy sitting in there says, he's not here, he's risen, like, like he told you. 
Now, if we're putting ourselves in the story we, and we hear the story and, and we're seeing it all in these big pictures that aren't like they went away afraid, we would think and we would hope in our storytelling ability that when we go in there and this, this guy in white clothes, this angel says, he's not here. He's risen just like he said. And guess what? Here he is. No, he's not here. He's gone ahead. Which is very interesting because this is also a, a scene we've seen play out in Mark all the time. If we recall way at the beginning, there are like 40-some times that Mark uses the phrase immediately. It's usually like then or instantly or right away is the term he uses. He was always jumping from thing to thing. Jesus came here. Remember, Mark just starts out with Jesus showing up on the scene. There's no birth narrative. There's no manger scene. There's just Jesus shows up. And, and he was baptized. Then he went to the desert. Then he came in and he's preaching. And then he started calling people to follow him. And then he went here to here to here to here to here. He was always moving because new people always needed to hear. There were new places to teach, new places to do miracles. And, and that was the march to the cross. And it was always very determined. And so the story moves on. It wasn't a state of, here he is, he's been waiting for you. No, no, he's gone. He's gone on the Galilee, like he said. And you're going to see him there. So go tell his disciples. So, so that theme was played out a lot, too. He, Jesus wasn't waiting around. He didn't set up, and if anybody wants to see this miraculous one, they can come from far and wide and see Jesus, who's going to set up shop outside the tomb. No, Jesus was on the go. On the loose. Jesus was changing the world radically. If we look at this, what do we do with this? I mean, it's historical reality. It's this amazing thing, right? The tomb is empty, but have you ever stopped to say, if you make an announcement that something's not there, that doesn't really prove anything. Does it? See the empty tomb? Well, there are people that have conspiracy theories that some of his followers tried to steal the body, right? Because not there doesn't prove anything. There's no proof of a resurrection because there's no body there. Well, somebody could have taken it. It could have been the wrong tomb. I mean, that doesn't prove anything. What he wants to prove is, go, you'll find him. Go, you'll see him. Go, he's promised he would be there. And everything else he has promised has come true. And so you can count on this. So when Mark is writing to his audience, I think one of the things, reasons he ends it the way he does is because these are people about 30 years after the time of Jesus, after the time he would have risen, who've, who've heard the story. Even though it says here the women were, were afraid and didn't say anything to anyone, we know they did. They eventually told. At some point in that day, they told people. And the fact that there were Christians in Rome meant they had all heard. But they were living in a deep place of, of unknown. And they were afraid. Mark's, Mark's audience experienced persecution. They, they experienced hatred because of Jesus. Because people hated him, they hated them. They, they experienced that, they knew it. There was uncertainty. And, and so this story that Mark teaches, they knew the rest of it. They knew the testimony of what followed, but, but they lived in uncertainty and they lived in peril. And it wasn't a neatly wrapped up story. See, I think so often we look at the, the story of the resurrection and we see it as a conclusion. Right? We, we see that as the, the end of something. 
Even when you think about a, a church calendar, what we celebrate, we have Christmas and we work ourselves to Easter. And Easter is a big deal. Easter is a big event, right? But it, it's almost like a conclusion that we got to Jesus was born. He taught. He was crucified. He was buried. He rose again. That's the end of the story. But Mark doesn't tie it up in a neat bow like that. It, it reminds me a lot of, you know, as, as a pastor, you do a lot of weddings, right? And then wedding preparations can be insane, working with a bride and a groom and a family, right? And the whole thing is about the event. And so all the energy goes into what flowers are we going to have, what dress, what tuxedos, who's in the wedding, where do we have it, what's the food at the reception, are we having a band, are we having a DJ, what are we doing? And we work out and spend all this money and build up to this day, and it's almost like we see it then. This is all the preparation, the work, and then it's, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And they kiss the bride, and they all lived happily ever after. End of story. No, no, we all know a wedding day isn't the end of anything. It's the beginning. And I think Mark wants us to grasp that when we think about the resurrection. When we think about the resurrection, and the holiday we set aside for that is Easter. Easter Sunday is something we focus on, and, and it's as if we get to that day and we say, and Jesus rose from the grave on Easter, end of story, and they all lived happily ever after. But that wasn't the experience of Mark's audience. And that's really not our experience. Because remember how we talked about this whole series. A whole series has been entitled Great Beginnings. Let me read for you again the very first verses of the book of Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. This, this whole, everything he is writing, everything he is speaking, everything he is preaching, everything he is communicating is what? It's the beginning. The beginning of what? It's the beginning of the good news, the gospel. And we discovered way back then that when we understand the word gospel or good news in its fullness, it's a huge term. We've narrowed it so often to saying the gospel is the story of Jesus dying for our sins. And if you ask for forgiveness, you will live forever. That's the gospel. That's one piece of the gospel. The gospel is about what is the kingdom? What did he teach? What was his life about? What happened to him? He did die. He was crucified. He rose again. The Holy Spirit is about what's the future? What does it mean to follow him? That's the gospel. And Mark says the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And we know from Mark that that messenger was John the Baptist. Prepare the way for the one. Well, in these last few verses of Mark, we hear from another messenger, this angel. This angel's message was not prepare the way, it was follow the way. The one who was prepared for is now leading the way. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee just like he said I would. And and we understand this phrase of he's going to Galilee, he's going ahead of you to Galilee is just not a statement of he's going to beat you to Galilee. He's going to get there first. No, this idea of going ahead of you is a, a leadership term, like being a shepherd or like being a military leader. He is going before you. He's not just being prepared for. He is here and now he is leading. And he wants you with him. That's an amazing statement. 
And so Mark ends his book, this gospel, which is just the beginning, by basically saying, now follow him. Now step into that life. He is challenging his audience to to react and to act and to step into the story. It's why this ending is so masterful. This whole thing is the beginning. Now what? Now there are other chapters to be written. And you're going to enter into those chapters. We made an analogy a few weeks ago about one of the other stories. It, it basically following Jesus is like a, a relay race. And all these others have come before and they've passed the baton. And when you take the baton, you don't know if you're running the last leg or not, but you run as if you are. It's the same thing. This is, this is a great beginning. It's a chance to step into the story in a completely different way. Why? Because that's what's next. The resurrection is a great beginning. It's not a conclusion. It's what makes life possible. It makes everything possible. The, The crucifixion, the death of Jesus, by which the centurion said, surely this man is the son of God. And then the resurrection, which unleashed it all. God is on the loose. That's a great beginning. That's not the end of anything. So it comes back to the question of what what, what do you do with this? And I think there's a great indicator in this passage about what we do with it. It's back to when the women are coming to prepare the body. And they're worried about who's going to move the stone when they get there. Which makes us ask the question, and maybe this is just so simplistic you're going to laugh and say, really, Dale, you're asking that question. Why did the stone have to be moved? I mean, if you go back to like your children's Bible, our instant thought is, well, the, the stones move so Jesus can get out. That's how I'd understand it as a four-year-old, five-year-old. In fact, it reminds me of the old story of the, the little Sunday school class, little four or five-year-olds, and the teacher goes on Easter morning. Hey, it's Easter. Who here knows what Easter means? And the little girl goes, I know. Easter is the day when Jesus comes out of his tomb. And if he sees his shadow, it means there's six more weeks of winter. <laughs> so, so, so we think on, on a, a very simplistic level that, well, the stone had to move because Jesus had to get out. But if we read the rest of the Gospels, the other Gospels, we get to the sense and this understanding that something radically had transformed Jesus' body, a resurrection body, and, and, and there were accounts of him just showing up places. And, and this is the Son of God. He is fully God and, and fully human, and in a, a resurrection body, he, a stone wasn't going to stop him from getting out. No, the stone was moved so the women could look in and see that he's not there and learn truth. But I have to ask myself, that, that I allow to become a barrier and stop me from saying, that's who Jesus is. Either from seeing him for the first time ever and going, this is absolutely true, or, or things that are preventing me from knowing him deeper and growing. We, we pray that God would move that rock. To say, can you grasp who I really am? Can you see who I really am? See that I'm not in that tomb. I, I'm on the loose. Or maybe, boy, I look at my own life. What are the things that prevent me from seeing Jesus for who he really is? And, and growing deeper understanding of him. I, I've talked before, I'm a very prideful man. I have a rock of pride. Laura will affirm that. Pride, stubbornness, you name it. And there could be all kinds of wisdom I receive from Laura and other people in my life on behalf of God who, who I know better about myself. 
That's a rock that gets in the way for seeing who God really wants to be in my life. Or maybe we could probably all affirm this in, in our culture. Maybe we have a rock of, of stuff. Good, fun stuff. Things I like to do or stuff I like to have. I, I love my kayak. I love my fly rod. I, I love buying new drivers to play golf. In fact, sometimes we can get so much stuff that, that we have to get a storage unit. Sounds like an old George Carlin routine, right? You have to get a storage unit to keep your stuff. And, and maybe we never even use that stuff anymore because it's in the storage unit, but we have it. It's awesome. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a rock that needs to be moved to help us see Jesus for who he really is and understand reality. Maybe like this story and these women, it's a rock of fear. The number one command in the Bible is don't be afraid. That's stated more often than any other command, any other imperative in all of Scripture. Don't be afraid. As Jesus said, don't be afraid. You still have no faith. I'm here with you. Maybe like Peter, the rock in our life is a rock of shame. One of my favorite lines in the entire book of Mark is one in this passage where the the angel said to the woman, go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is ahead of you. He's going into Galilee. Now, why is that phrase important? Well, the, the last time we saw Peter, he broke down and wept in the courtyard outside the chief priest's house when Jesus had been just been committed to death. And we said there were two trials going on. One, Jesus before the chief priest, and the other was Peter in the courtyard. And Peter lost his trial, and he understood that just as Jesus said, he, he denied Jesus three times. He says he broke down and wept. And that's the last time we heard of Peter in the book. And so we can just imagine Peter was filled with shame. I, I, I was such a braggart. I, I was so prideful. I, I said I would even die for him. And yet I couldn't even say I know him. I called down curses from heaven, saying, I don't know that man. So this is a man that easily was full of shame. But in this instant, this very specific calling out, go tell his disciples who had also scattered, and Peter, if we read the subtext, who probably feels incredibly shameful, tell him, I'm going to meet him in Galilee. Why? Because as somebody who moves rocks that prevent from seeing Jesus says, I can move that rock. I am going to lead again. Why? Because when I look at you, I see your future potential, not your past. Let me move that rock. Maybe it's a a rock of indifference or, or a rock of unforgiveness. A rock of misplaced expectations. There are all kinds of things we've come up that, that, that are rocks that prevent us from seeing who Jesus really is. And this passage, this book of Mark, this story of great beginnings says there's always a place to start again. Step into the story. Let me move those rocks. Let me free you from your shame. Let me forgive you. Let me give you grace and confidence and boldness. That's what happened in their lives when the Holy Spirit came. The rules were changed. Everything was now possible. My goal when I stepped into 
your circumstance 11 months ago. What's to help you transition to what's next? And we did that by looking at the book of Mark, a book of great beginnings for each of us and for Stapleton Fellowship Church. This is an exciting time. I mean, after this service is a, is a vote to, to welcome Matt and his family. And I don't know how the vote go. I assume it'll be a good, positive thing. Because you guys are ready for something new. You're ready and you're looking, but having Matt come is not the end of a story. It's not the end of your responsibility as people in this church. It's not the end of anything. It's the beginning of something. It's the next chapter that you get to step into and you're inviting somebody else to join you in that chapter. But it's not just your chapter. It's the chapter that is being written. It's the chapter of how you are faithfully following Jesus. It's the chapter of stepping into life and moving rocks as a church and moving rocks in your own life because God loves to move rocks. And saying, how do we impact this community a different way? How do we love each other differently? How do we look at this passage and remind ourselves, just like when Jesus said, tell Peter that God is for us. My prayer for you is that you would understand that God is for you. He is for this community. He is for the world that we live in. And we get to step in that and play a role. That's my prayer for you. You would hold on to that. You would act and react to what God is calling you to do and who he is calling you to be as individuals and as a church. You get to invite in into your presence, into your midst, into your church, a, a really young guy and a young family. He's been pastoring five years at a church in Nebraska. I, I've met Matt a few years ago. Sharp guy. He, he's passionate and energetic, and, and you need to let him be. You need to say, what's the next chapter? How do we turn the page? What does that look like? It might be something completely different than we ever thought it would be. Why? Because we've invited somebody with different thoughts and different ideas and different passion and different gifts to walk with us. Let's do that. This is the fun part of the interim thing. I get to get you guys energized for what's next. And I don't know what it is. And neither do you. But as you step into that story, as you take that baton, run as if it's the last leg. Live that story as if it is the conclusion. Stay strong and stay passionate and listen to God and listen to each other and let him move rocks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word.